If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The next podcast is a bit different from our normal fare. What you're about to hear is a lecture from our recent virtual Medieval Life and Death event, where we invited five medieval historians to speak on various topics related to everyday experiences in the Middle Ages. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, introduces the speaker and runs a short Q&A with them afterwards. If you want, you can watch these lectures on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. In this talk, Hannah Skoda discusses medieval violence. Right. Welcome to BBC History Magazine's Medieval Life and Death Day, the virtual version. My name is David Musgrove. I work for BBC History Magazine, and we were planning on running a Medieval History Day this year, 2020. Uh, But uh, sadly, Corona has rendered that impossible. So instead, we've asked our speakers to deliver their talks virtually instead. We're about to hear from Dr Hannah Skoda, Fellow and Tutor in Medieval History at St John's, Oxford. She works on the cultural and social history of the later Middle Ages, and she's written a monograph uh, which was entitled Medieval Violence, Physical Brutality in Northern France, 1270 to 1330. Her talk today builds on that topic, and she is going to be looking at crime and violence in the Middle Ages. So Hannah, please take it away. So this is a lovely opportunity to tell you um, about a distinctly non-lovely subject. Um, last year, I gave a, a lecture on violence to my students. And at the start of it, I knocked over my glass of water, um, cut my hand open and bled profusely all over the lectern. So it was grotesquely appropriate. And I'm hoping that today's talk will be altogether um, less eventful. Having said that, the subject matter is really unpleasant. And with that comes, I think, an ethical imperative to think about our own role as historians to think respectfully about the victims and to approach the subject with integrity. So this opening slide um, shows you a duel between Renard the Fox and Isengrin the Wolf. It's a very graphic image and the expressions on the animals' faces are brilliant, I think. So the Renard stories were anthropomorphic tales. That is, the animals behave like human beings albeit excessively cruel and sadistic ones. The stories were wildly popular in the Middle Ages. There's even stories, even examples of monks drawing cartoons of Renard the fox um, on the walls of their cells. And Renard is horrifically violent. That's the main theme um, of this corpus of stories. He's a really, really nasty piece of work. Each one of the tales tells us about something unspeakable that he's done um, to his friends um, or to his enemies. So in this case, Isengrin the wolf is really upset because of something truly appalling that Renard has done to his wife. um, And Renard then urinated all over his children. So the popularity of these stories tells us something really important about medieval violence. It was ubiquitous and brutal but people seem to have found it really entertaining, funny even. But it was also really problematic. People laughed at it because they found it difficult to comprehend. The Renard stories have real bite because Renard is charismatic, sure, but he's also an anti-hero who left his readers disgusted and troubled. And that's really the bigger point that I want to make in this talk. Crime and violence really bothered people in the Middle Ages. Violence was common, yes, but it was also frightening and distressing. It was taken to be useful, communicative, strategic, but these were not populations inured to cruelty. They took the trouble to legislate about and to prosecute violence precisely because it was seen as problematic. 
they laughed at it because they found it so troubling. So the best jokes, I think, are always the ones that make us feel really uncomfortable, the ones that touch a raw nerve. Now, referring to my title, crime and violence are clearly not quite the same thing, but they are bound up in one another. Crime is obviously that which is deemed deviant in a legal sense. So it's a construction. It's something which doesn't exist until it's defined as such. Whereas violence is the physical maltreatment of another being. Although the word has to be said, it's used very differently in different periods. The very process of criminalisation over the course of the Middle Ages tells us that violence was deemed intensely problematic. So in this lecture, I want to focus not only on the types of violence which were common in the Middle Ages, but also on the ways in which medieval people thought about and worried about violence. So the million dollar question is always, were the Middle Ages really more violent than other periods? Has violence indeed decreased over time? It's really, really difficult to gather statistics about this not least because what was defined as violence was constantly shifting. And certainly what was criminalised, prosecuted and recorded shifted very dramatically. So an example, domestic violence was thought about very differently in the Middle Ages um, and it was not always defined as violence. Sometimes spousal abuse was seen as praiseworthy discipline and even if a husband did beat his wife sufficiently for it to be deemed criminal, the bar for successful prosecution and recording of the crime was set very high indeed. All that said, homicide is perhaps the most straightforward category um, to think about statistically. So most societies see this as criminal behaviour and most record its prosecution. So it's a reasonable way to try and spot a trend over time. So the graph on this slide um, is taken from the work of Manuel Eisner on historical trends in violence. Um, so he's a criminolo criminologist at Cambridge. It's very problematic. Legal norms, definitions, prosecution and reporting are radically different across these periods. But nevertheless, you can see there is um, a very clear trend. Numbers of homicides per 100,000 individuals decrease sharply over time. And I think we can conclude that the Middle Ages saw very high levels of violence um, and that one would not wish to time travel to the 14th century. Or at least if you did, you'd want to pick where you went really carefully. But there are, of course, really important exceptions. What about genocide, the mass murder of the modern period? I think it's really important that we don't look at a graph like this and become too self-congratulatory. It's not a picture of uplifting progress. Nor is it a straightforward condemnation of the Middle Ages, because whilst levels of violence may have been high, they really worried about it. How then might we explain this decline in levels of violence? So scholars have come at this question from a range of angles um, and I'll briefly introduce three particularly powerful ones. So the first is Warren Brown, who's written this brilliant overview, Violence in Medieval Europe. And here he discusses the relationship between violence and political power. As states became more powerful, they were keen to control societies and able to legislate more forcefully against violence. The famous sociologist Max Weber talked about the monopolisation of violence by the state. So this was the idea that violence was now a matter for the state to deal with via violent punishment rather than for individuals um, in ways that could kind of wreak havoc with social harmony. But even as medieval states developed, they tended in fact to adopt really very ambivalent attitudes um, towards violence. Another angle on the question um, was explored by Norbert Elias. So he was a, a German sociologist writing in the first half of the 20th century 
Um, And he didn't really make much impact until much later in the 20th century when his work was translated and it's since become absolutely seminal. This is the thing that everybody's referring to all the time. Elias argues that it's not so much the development of law, but the development of a so-called court society, which made all the difference and which limited violence. So Elias is interested in the growth of things like etiquette and social taboos. And he argues that as these became more powerful, increasingly it it just wasn't the done thing um, to beat up your neighbour because they'd irritated you for whatever reason. There's a lot that's really convincing about this approach, but it also relies on a sense that medieval people just beat each other up on a whim without really thinking about it. Um, And as we'll see over the course of the talk, this really isn't true. Oops, sorry. A third approach um, is provided by Stephen Pinker, whose book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, uses a historical psychological approach to paint a really optimistic picture of human progress. And perhaps unsurprisingly, this book was endorsed by Bill Gates. Um, it credits the role of the liberal, of liberal democracy, of commerce, of globalism, um, as reasons for the apparent overcoming of what he calls our demons by our better angels. So there's some truth to all these claims, but none of them perhaps with the exception of Warren Brown, do quite justice to the complexity and the sophistication of medieval attitudes towards crime and violence. So what might we add? Clearly, this is largely a story of criminalisation. Levels of interpersonal violence do tend to decrease when they are legislated against and when they're policed. Though this isn't a straightforward relationship. What was criminalised and punished in the Middle Ages, is actually really specific. So famously, in the Anglo-Saxon period, theft was punished far more severely than murder. In the later Middle Ages, there was no clear distinction between murder and manslaughter in law. But in legal practice, we do tend to find this distinction. In other words, in England at least, medieval juries tended to adjust their findings so that they distinguished between intentional and unintentional homicide, even if that distinction wasn't there in law. So the point is that there are a great deal more nuances in this story of criminalisation. The mention of juries um, really draws our attention to the importance of communities in the prosecution of medieval law. The common narrative is one of growing states able to impose law from an increasingly top-down perspective and keen to minimise interpersonal feuds and violence. But actually, law could only really be applied um, with the cooperation of local communities, and it was their involvement in reporting, in fact-finding and in assessing, in England via the use of juries, and even in punishing, um, which really, I think, shifted attitudes to violence. It's communities which really matter. So this image in the slide um, shows stocks still in use in the 19th century. And stocks are really the classic example of the involvement of communities in prosecuting crime. The state might announce that certain behaviours were to be criminalised, but the actual punishment um, in this case was carried out by the community itself. This kind of public shaming of community policing, was a really effective way of keeping people in line. Little mattered more to people in the Middle Ages than reputation, and public humiliation was really hard to recover from. In fact, it's always struck me that um, medieval punishment was surprisingly non-violent. The letter of the law prescribed extreme brutality, um, though note they were really ambivalent about the the kind of the usefulness and the justifiability of torture. But in practice, um, corporal punishment was actually most often avoided. Um, They used fines instead um, or communal shaming, and that tended to be enough. So a second set of explanations regarding the high homicide rate in the Middle Ages might lie in medical practice. 
If you got beaten up in a tavern brawl, you were much more likely to die from your injuries. I don't think this alone is sufficient to explain the dramatic drop that we saw in the graph, but it is important nonetheless. A fight could turn fatal very easily indeed. Add to that the ready availability of weapons and you have a really toxic mix. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that all medieval physicians were total idiots. They really weren't. Medieval thinking, sorry, medieval medical thinking um, was surprisingly sophisticated. Um, And the skill of surgeons could be rather impressive. So in the, the slide here, you've got Um, an image of the extractor used by John Bradmore um, to extract an arrowhead from the future Henry V's cheek um, after the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403. And this was a wound from which Henry would almost certainly have died had Bradmore not acted so skillfully and decisively. The most convincing explanations, though, lie in the cultures of violence. That is to say, these were cultural contexts in which violence was seen as an understandable response to certain offences or insults. So this is an image from the amazing 14th century manuscript of the life of Saint-Denis, Saint-Denis. So in the main illumination on each page, which you can see on the the left-hand side of, of this slide, we see an image from the life of the martyred third century Bishop of Paris, Denis. But underneath each of these scenes is an intricately depicted scene from 14th century Paris when the manuscript was produced. And the scenes show the petit pont over the Seine with images from everyday Parisian life. So the whole point of these images is that they're ordinary, they're really everyday, to make the life of St. Denis himself seem more relevant um, in a contemporary context for those who are looking at the manuscript. Anyway, so these are to be sort of everyday little scenes, recognisable. And here you can see two little men having a violent bust up on the street. This is an image of urban life which was bustling with commerce and activity and violence. Violence could communicate. It was strategic. Clearly, sometimes it was just also drunken and angry. But these were certainly societies in which violence was often an expected response. Not an acceptable one, but a common one with shared meanings. People knew how to read it, so to speak. So, for example, in 1292, a malicious gossiper in Arras in northern France claimed that he'd slept with the wife of one Thomas Bourian. Shortly afterwards, Bourian attacked him and cut off his nose and cut out his tongue as he apparently felt that his honour and that of his wife was at stake. So this was an episode all about vengeance and it was highly symbolic. Honour, reputation and communication lay at the heart of violence. We might add the ready availability of alcohol. So this slide shows Chaucer's pardoner. His story in the Canterbury Tales is one of pretty extreme violence. Three men in a tavern drunkenly decide um, that they want to kill death. And an old man tells them they can meet death under a tree. Since there's treasure under this tree, the three men brawl and fight over it and predictably end up killing one another. So they have indeed met death and they proved that the little proverb, radix malorum est cupiditas. So greed or desire is the root of all evils. Now, of course, this isn't a true story. Chaucer, via his partner, was trying both to moralise and to amuse. Why tell a joke about death and violence in a society which, in the 1380s, was still suffering the terrifying aftershocks of bubonic plague? As we all know right now... Jokes can provide a little light relief. But we also know that the best jokes are those which touch a raw nerve. The ones which pick up on the issues we know to be most problematic and discomfort us further through troubling laughter. So Chaucer and his pardoner knew that their medieval audience was acutely aware of their own mortality and anxious about the terrifying prevalence 
of violence. So I'd like to turn now um, to think about the types of violence which characterised the period. I can't possibly be comprehensive, um, but I want to give a sense of the range of crime and violence which were pretty much ubiquitous and more importantly, to give you a sense of the ways in which medieval people worried about these. Sometimes they worried by laughing, sometimes by crying, sometimes by legislating, sometimes just by talking or writing about it. And at this stage, we can draw out some generalisations. Very often, some kind of vengeance strategy seems to have been at stake. This was a way of negotiating interpersonal relationships in his analysis of the records of the 13th century heir, that's an itinerant court um, in England, James Given finds that of 3,492 people accused of homicide, only 1,120 didn't have a named companion. I, they did this together in little groups. And even more significantly, in 20.2 of those named, sorry, 20.2% of those named cases the companion was a kinsman of the attacker. And of those who acted with a relation, 49.7% did it with a sibling. So this suggests that family rivalries were at stake. These were about issues of family honour very often. There was also often a strong economic component. Um, and sometimes social grievances were also at stake. In fact, given that many acts of violence um, involved multiple perpetrators, most often, in fact, we find a range of motivations. Um, so a case from Hampshire, prosecuted in 1388 in the Royal Court, is rather telling. So I will read you a little from the, um, from the case. Robert Blake, chaplain, and John Ball, the servants of Andrew Walton, and Elizabeth, the late wife of the aforesaid Andrew, were arrested on the ground that they lay in wait at Hinton Daubney for the aforesaid Andrew, the master of the said Robert and John and the husband of the said Elizabeth, in order to slay him. And there they slew him, feloniously and treasonably, and they plotted to throw him into a certain well at Compsfield. And they are common waylayers and plunderers in the aforesaid fields and ways. They are common thieves and traitors to the king's people and to the said Andrew, their master. And Elizabeth was indicted on the ground that she gave consent and aid to the slaying of the said Andrew, her husband. So it's a story of thieving and economic motivations. It's also a story about social resentment against the wealthy master. And we might speculate um, that it's also a story of unhappy marriage or possibly spousal abuse, given the wife Elizabeth's involvement. Right. Here's another image um, from the Vie de Saint-Denis, the life of St. Denis, which we saw earlier. Here we can see one of the groups most associated with violence in the Middle Ages, that is students. In this particular image, they're not doing any particular harm for once. Um, there are, the, you can see in the boat there, there's a group of students from the University of Paris um, going for a skinny dip in the Seine. You can see them taking their robes off. You can see one of them's holding his nose. He's about to jump in um, beneath the Petit Pont near Notre Dame. Even more intriguingly, you can see that the little naked guy there um, has got a little tail, um, which seems to refer to a really bizarre belief that Englishmen had tails. So he's an English student. So students got up to all sorts of mischief. At one end of the spectrum, this was about petty naughtiness. Things like smearing feces on their master's chairs, urinating out of windows onto passers-by, tavern brawls, um, really nasty bullying, particularly in deeply unpleasant inception ceremonies. Often these involved pretending that the freshman um, was an animal who needed to be tamed, shaved, stripped of his bestial characteristics. Um, there's a dialogue surviving from the University of Heidelberg in the 15th century where the students bully the fresher to tears and then taunt, I quote, what if his mother should know about this, whose only tenderly reared darling he is? And there seems often to have been a sense of pride um, in all this. 
conscientious students were often taunted. Um, in a rather telling case, a Parisian student named Henri um, was accused of brawling. And he responded along the lines of, well, what do you expect? He described his violent behaviour as jeunesse, youthful pranks. But it could also get really vicious. Um, this kind of thing could involve vicious beatings of prostitutes, rape, full-blown battles, um, which were often self-consciously humorous. So a group of Oxford students strutted off to Ifley Fields in 1414, fully armed um, and wearing ostrich feathers. A 14th century group of students in Paris named themselves the Société ou Confédération de la Bonne Volonté, so the Society or the Confederation of Goodwill. It was a sort of, um, a sort of 14th century Bullingdon club who chose their name in order to take the mickey out of more peaceful um, peaceable associations like confraternities. But there was nothing funny about the St. Scholastica's Day Massacre of 1354. So this is Carfax Tower in Oxford, opposite which the spark for the massacre took place when a student complained that he'd been served watered-down ale by the tavern keeper. Other students rapidly waded into the ensuing brawl the townspeople began to arm themselves and the result was absolute carnage. The explosion of decades of brewing resentment against a student population. So what does this tell us about violence more generally? It tells us that townspeople were utterly sick of student behaviour. And it tells us a lot about medieval patterns um, of criminalisation. Students had what we call privilege of clergy, which meant that because they had clerical status, they weren't subject to the usual courts um, and they appeared to get away with horrific brutality with impunity. The law was highly selective. Legal consequences of violence depended hugely um, upon who had committed it. During the massacre, the violence wreaked by the townspeople was, by contrast, unsparing. Some of the students they captured um, were scalped. It's gruesome, but also highly symbolic. So the students had tonsures, i.e. shaven heads, to indicate their clerical status. So scalping them was a way of indicating fury at their clerical legal privilege and all the awful things they seem to have done with impunity over the years. So we learn something about the range of legal responses to violence. Status and context was everything. And we learn something about the brutality of an enraged crowd. The townspeople were punished literally for centuries afterwards. The town found itself deprived of all jurisdictional privileges um, and fined for years afterwards. So to return to my main point, the episode tells us that extreme violence took place both by students and towards students, but it was met with fury and with horror. One of the most famous of all misbehaving medieval students was François Villon. So he was a 15th century Parisian poet um, and an absolute renegade. He was part of a criminal gang um, and his escapades ranged from jokey pranks um, to murder. So his poetry survives but the records um, of the prosecution also survive. I mention him now because as well as taking part in brutal violence, he also reflected lyrically on its consequences. And the consequences which struck him most poignantly as a criminal himself was the violence of the law. In his Ballade des Pendus, the Ballad of the Hanged Men, he ventriloquizes um, the corpses hanging on the gibbet to say, and I quote, brothers who come after us, don't harden your hearts against us. We are never still, but sway to and fro in the wind. Birds peck at us more than needles on a thimble. Brothers, there's nothing funny about this. May God absolve us all. 
So one of the most shamelessly violent poets of the Middle Ages provides us with a really moving and a poignant sense of the miserable consequences of violence, both the violence of ordinary people and the violence of the law. Now, by any measure, the St. Scholastica's Day Massacre was brutally violent, and by any measure, the actions of Villon and his gang were brutal. But in many spheres, medieval people were far more hesitant um, about how to define violence itself. When was beating someone up unacceptable violence? And when was it laudable discipline? Nowhere was this conundrum more apparent than in the question of domestic abuse. So it's almost impossible to know how widespread domestic abuse was in the Middle Ages. These were highly patriarchal and pretty misogynist societies, but precisely for that reason, domestic abuse was rarely prosecuted, unless it actually resulted in the death of the wife. The story of the patient Griselda gives us some useful insights. So this was a story which was really popular um, throughout the later Middle Ages, and it was immortalised in the work of Petrarch, um, Boccaccio and Chaucer. So the story is of a wealthy knight called Gualtieri, um, who is finally persuaded to marry. He chooses a very virtuous and impossibly beautiful peasant girl. And once married, he decides to test her obedience and virtue. So first, he just abuses her regularly, and she responds always patiently and uncomplainingly. Then he has her daughter take away, taken away and causes her to believe that the child has been killed. Still, she doesn't complain. He then takes away her son. Still, she doesn't complain. Finally, he rejects her altogether and tells her that he's going to marry someone of noble blood instead. And he orders Griselda to prepare the wedding feast for the new wife. At which point, finally convinced of her utter submissiveness, he reveals that her children are still alive and that he loves her after all. So, happily ever after... We don't know. Well, actually, we probably do, but apparently we don't know because the story ends there. But part of the medieval fascination with the story um, came from the fact that it didn't simply affirm a marital hierarchy wherein a husband could abuse his wife as much as he liked. Even the characters in the story remark on Gualtieri's excessively cruel behaviour. He's crossed a line from discipline to abuse. In legal terms and in religious terms, medieval thinkers agonised about where to draw the line between discipline and abuse. There's a 14th century preacher's manual called um, the Fasciculus Morum, which is very telling. It says, A wife wrongly treated by her husband should suffer patiently lest her husband lose face by censure. And if to his shame by chance a lesion appears on her from beatings, she should carefully pretend otherwise, claiming she'd incur sorry, incurred some other misfortune. So the implication is that beating one's wife was fairly normal, but also that it's potentially really shameful. Though, of course, the onus was on the woman to disguise it. In trying to distinguish between um, discipline and abuse, they referred again and again to the notion of reason or moderation. But this is, of course, a matter of perspective. And this kind of ambivalence shows up in the ways in which domestic violence was prosecuted um, and usually pardoned. So, for example, in 1327, it was the friends of the convicted Massy de Molombe, one of the king's cooks in Paris, who appealed on his behalf. So he'd been condemned for a murderous um, assault on his wife. But his friends claimed, in this appeal for his pardon, um, that it was justifiable discipline. She just was so annoying that she'd had it coming, sort of thing. And one of the most effective ways um, of expressing the very problematic nature of do domestic discipline um, or domestic violence was to poke fun, fun at it um, and to turn it on its head. So hence the very popular motif of the husband-beating wife, which you can see here um, on a seat carving from St Mary's Church in Fairford. Medieval culture loved images of the world upside down and they're enigmatic to say the least. 
But the whole idea of a wife who beat her husband was deemed inherently comic and a way of complicating any straightforward reactions to ideas of domestic violence. These were cultures which encouraged the violent disciplining of a disrespectful wife, but they were also cultures which recognised the problems, moral, practical and indeed social, um, which this produced. So to some extent, medieval anxiety about violence was about channelling and containing it. It was about distinguishing between acceptable and unacceptable use of physical force. So this is the third kind of violence um, I'd like to discuss today. Chivalric violence, the violence of knights, chivalry, those who fought on horseback um, and those who enjoyed the cachet and the honour which came with this. So what was chivalry? It's a really, really hard concept to define. It's a set of ethical values, but there was no single chivalric code. Increasingly, it referred to social status, especially as the rituals surrounding it, like dubbing, um, grew ever more elaborate. And it was a calling with almost spiritual overtones. And of course, chivalry was bound up in warfare and in violence. It prescribed particular ways to fight, particular ways to treat one's enemies, particular ways to demonstrate one's courage um, and one's honour. But it also raises many questions. And these were questions which really exercised contemporaries. Did chivalry increase levels of violence or did it help to contain them? Did it reduce bloodshed or did it actually exacerbate it? Was it about empty show or was it about real action? Was it about reality or was it about romance? So the great um, 12th century Cistercian reformer Bernard of Clairvaux fulminated that knights, and I quote, cover their horses in silks and dress their armour with swatches of flowing cloth. Are these the trappings of chivalry or the, sorry, are these the tokens of chivalry or the trappings of women? So, His point was one about masculinity, um, but it was also about questioning the point of chivalric violence and the danger of empty show and pretension. Now, I've picked here um, the example of Robert II of Artois. So he died in 1302 and his life is that really of the ultimate medieval knight. Right, so he died in battle. And here you can see his tomb. You can see his feet are resting on a lion um, rather than a dog, which might have suggested that he died at home. His career came to a very abrupt end at the Battle of the Golden Spurs, um, sometimes known as the Battle of Courtrai in 1302. This was a battle um, fought between the flower of French knighthood and, rather improbably, the weavers of Flanders. And it was a battle which the French approached with a degree of misplaced arrogance because they were massacred by the weavers who knew their terrain um, and exploited their strategic advantage um, and has to be said to some extent the complacency of their enemy. But before this Robert had enjoyed a glittering career. He took part in numerous campaigns and he exhibited courage, generosity towards his followers. He took part in the Tunis Crusade in 1270 Um, He'd fought in Spain and Sicily, and he defeated the Flemings in 1297 at the Battle of Furn. His father died in 1250 on crusade as well, and his father had actually been um, compared to one of Arthur's companions, Sir Gawain of the Round Table. Anyway, Robert's violence was very real, as was, for better or for worse, his courage. He seemed to contemporaries to embody everything that one might hope for in a great chivalric hero. But he also loved stories. <clears throat> and we know that his library, now lost, um, was full of the tales of Arthur and of ancient Troy. He was fascinated by romantic tales of daring do. So what does this tell us about chivalry? Does it suggest that it was a form of ritualised violence which effectively eliminated real pain? Or is something more complex going on? Robert loved tournaments. This was the great spectator sport of its day. Tournaments were seen as great fun, 
but they were also fantastically dangerous. Um, so, for example, uh, Florence, Count of Holland, was killed in a tournament in 1223. His son was killed in a tournament in 1234, and his brother was killed in a tournament in 1238. So you have, uh, you know, an entire family wiped out by these horrifically um, violent sport sporting events. Kings very frequently banned tournaments, partly because they were seen as a colossal waste of life um, and because they could provoke rebellion. But kings also participated, um, participated in them and encouraged them. They really couldn't make up their minds. The 1278 Romance of M, which is a text about a tournament, tells us that Robert of Artois spent three days at a tournament in Artois dressed as Yvain, um, who's uh, one of the characters from the tales of King Arthur. So here then, Robert's love of tournaments, his love of literature and his love of chivalry were all fused together. Reality and romance were intertwined. And meanwhile, the violence was very real indeed. Right, so this is an image um, from a manuscript <clears throat> about a slightly later tournament at Chauvency in 1285, seven years later. You can hopefully just about make out that the jousting knights um, are wearing the most extraordinary headdresses and they even seem to have wings. This is another image from the same manuscript which shows the sheer lavishness of their outfits. And in this image, you can see much more clearly that the combatants have wings attached to their backs. So what on earth is going on here? Just like Robert, these knights seem to have been dressing up as characters from the Arthurian romances they loved so much. One of the central stories in the Arthurian corpus is that of Parsifal, Percival, and the quest for the Holy Grail. In the 12th century version of this story um, by Chrétien de Troyes, which was the one that we think Robert of Artois um, may have enjoyed, Parsifal is brought up alone in the forest by his mother. So she's desperate to shield him um, from the ways of the world, and in particular from knights, since her husband um, was a knight who'd been killed and she doesn't want to lose her son as well. One day, Parseval is playing in a clearing in the wood and he hears this terrible din, a terrible clattering. Um, he's very young, he's very naive, and he assumes at first that these must be devils approaching. The clattering draws closer and a group of knights emerges into the clearing. Parseval sees their gleaming armour, he sees their sparkling hauberks, their shining helmets, green and scarlet, <clears throat> gold, azure, silver, glittering in the sunshine. And he exclaims, and I quote, Sweet Lord my God, these are angels I am seeing. So needless to say, he falls wildly in love with the idea of becoming a knight. He embraces his vocation and he leaves his poor mother devastated and weeping. So she says, you are my only consolation, the only blessing which remained to me. And Parseval, I quote, barely paid her any attention. Give me something to eat, he said. I'm going off with the knights. So the knights in this manuscript at the 13th century tournament of Chauvency, just like Robert II of Artois in his costume at M, were deliberately referencing this Arthurian context with their angel knights. But they weren't just playing a game of fancy dress. This was a way of articulating the grandeur and the nobility of the values they claimed to espouse. But it was also a way of engaging with the complexity of medieval violence. Those Arthurian tales were never straightforward. There is much about the moral dangers and temptations of violence as they are about ennobling it. There is much about the tragedy of bloodshed as they are about heroic deeds. So this has been a whistle-stop tour of various kinds of medieval crime and violence. What have we learned? Violence was ubiquitous. Life was bloody. This was not a gentle or reassuring time to live. But nor was it a complacent one. And it's this lack of complacency which makes the Middle Ages appealing, I think. In all kinds of ways, people really worried about excessive violence. 
Developing legal mechanisms challenged the role of physical violence. But equally, the violence of the law itself provoked distress, and not just amongst its victims. Violence was endlessly discussed in poetry, in stories, in moral texts, in sermons, and so on. And it was something that people liked to joke about. Not because it didn't matter, but precisely because it did matter so much. Jokes could be in stories, or they could be painfully real. In 1264, the people of Saint-Riquier in northern France mounted a violent protest against their overlords. It was carefully planned, and it was extremely funny. So they took the bones of a horse, and they took the skeleton of a cat, and they pretended that these were the relics of two local saints. They processed these through the town, complete with an elaborate ritual, And when they reached the church, a fight broke out between two men, a fight which had been carefully kind of planned and staged beforehand. One of the others held up the so-called relics and cried out, stop fighting in the name of Saint-Riquier. Fighting stopped immediately. Everyone said it was a miracle. And the townspeople continued their exuberant and um, parodic protest. The local monks and the local bishop were absolutely livid about this violent but satirical mocking of their authority. For the purposes of this talk, the episode encapsulates a lot that is key to understanding medieval violence. First, there was a lot of it. Second, it was spectacular, subversive, a powerful means of communication. But third, people really worried about it and about its implications. And one of the most effective ways of doing this was through a joke. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, Some of the best images of um, stocks in the medieval period are in the margins of manuscripts. So not the kind of serious illuminations depicting whatever saint it may be, but the little marginal figures um, who were there. No one quite knows why, possibly as a sort of joke. Hannah, thank you very much for that um, absolutely fascinating talk. And if anyone's listening to this uh, on our podcast, I would uh, uh, recommend that you go to our website, historyextra.com, and uh, have a look at the video of this because uh, you've missed out quite a lot by just listening to an audio version. The images there were uh, really quite instructive and very interesting, and there were some some amazing uh, images that uh, Hannah's found. I particularly like that one of the uh, the, the medieval wife um, uh, dealing out justice to her husband on that uh, church. That was was excellent. Um, So uh, I have a few questions, if you don't mind. So I I was... um First one, I was I was reading a very interesting um, um, uh, doctoral thesis uh, the other day from someone who was looking at the uh, change in personal names over the medieval period um, and showing that um, towards the end of the period, most people tend to have there's a lot, much more sort of homogeneity of names. Everyone's called Richard or John or Thomas, and that was part of this process of uh, building up a, a community and a, a more communal spirit, which seems to to drop into what you were talking about about the the communal aspects of policing violence and 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 uh, violence being managed within a community rather than by the law itself is that is that a fair reading of of, of part of your yeah, approach that sounds like a fascinating thesis yeah um no I think that's absolutely right that I don't know I mean right from the start I think communities are, are, are really central in the ways in which people talk about think about and deal with violence um but if anything, as those processes of criminalization become sort of intensified over the course of the medieval period, the role of communities becomes ever more important. It's partly just a practical matter that medieval states don't necessarily have the means um, to deal with everything at a local level if they don't have the cooperation of local communities. They don't have a permanent police force, for example. Um, but it's also a, it's also a sort of conceptual matter. It's the, the ways in which people are thinking about this and the sense that communities need to, to kind of stick together. Um, one of the ways in which medieval crime can be dealt with is through the process of outlawry. So if you create an outlaw, you're saying they no longer have the protection of the law. And that's something which is utterly reliant on the role of community. Um, connected with that is the idea of sanctuary, that if you think somebody actually doesn't deserve the full weight of the law or at least deserves shelter for a temporary 
period, um, the community, in a sense, supports that idea that they can seek sanctuary for 40 days um, until they're actually tried or outlawed. Okay, this this is an unfair question because it's going back before your period. But I was just wondering that graph you showed at the start of your presentation about uh, the the curve of homicide and it's sort of gradually dropping down from from the medieval period towards the present day. If that graph had gone backwards in time into uh, you know pre conquest uh, period, early medieval, would it have shown homicide higher then? Do you think is it is it sort of a gradual process going down there? I think it very likely would have done, but I definitely can't answer the question. And the reason I can't answer it is because the ways in which homicide slash murder are dealt with legally um, before the moment at which the graph starts just looks so different that um, pulling out any numbers is, is virtually impossible, I think. In any case, we'd need to decide really carefully what we meant by homicide anyway. Where does the boundary come between, I don't know, killing people killing people in a military context, but killing people in a raid or something that's not exactly warfare, but it's not exactly homicide? The, the boundaries just get really, really blurred. Um, but I don't know, maybe the blunt way of putting it would be to say that I wouldn't choose to go back to the ninth century either. I suspect it was even worse. Okay, and just thinking about the, the sort of the military aspect of this, um, you talked a bit about chivalry and uh, and that. That's very interesting. I was wondering, in periods when there was particular conflict, so you know, Hundred Years' War or Wars of the Roses or or the Crusades, people come back from the Crusades. When there are a bunch of people who had been involved in military conflicts and who are you know perhaps coming back from conflicts, does that do you see spikes in violence as a consequence of this with men who? you know, lived in a violent society or been involved in violence and then come back into the civilian world and maybe carry on. Is there, is there any way of seeing anything like that? I think very likely, but it's really, really hard to tell simply because legal systems are not, they're not sufficiently systems yet um, to produce sets of records which are comparable on that level from year to year. Um, so when we see spikes, it, it's just, it's really, really difficult to associate them with particular um, uh, sort of contingent causes like that. However, um, quite clearly there are connections. There are connections the other way around. Um, People who are um, convicted of some very serious crime, at least in the 14th and 15th centuries, quite often seem to have the possibility then of going off and fighting in a war as a way of sort of earning their pardon, um, in a sense. Um, When they come back, I say it's very difficult to trace, but... Um, one of the early results of a, of a big new project thinking about who was involved in the 1381 Peasants' Revolt, this is a huge new AHRC-funded project, one of the early results of that seems to be finding that a lot of the names cropping up were people who had been fighting in the Hundred Years' War and who'd come back felt really disillusioned that, you know, they'd given so much and and they'd also been involved in this really, really intense kind of situation um, and they'd come back to you know, dearth and misery and thwarted expectations and so on. Um, and those names seem to then crop up as participants in the 1381 revolt. And I suppose uh, it's a term that wouldn't that doesn't have any any particular um, value for the medieval period because it's it's a, it's a modern construct. But post traumatic stress presumably would have played a part in that sort of thing. People who've seen terrible things. I'm sure know, that's right. And um, interestingly, just in the past year, there've been a couple of books coming out on the idea of trauma in the Middle Ages. It's very, very difficult to write about because of the kinds of sources that that survive. Um, but particularly in the context of female victims of, of various kinds of crimes, um, people are starting to try and, and, and elaborate the ways that we might think about trauma. And one of the ways in which that appeal, appears in records is through the very lengthy legal processes which happened afterwards. So you, you can get a sense of how reactions are kind of victim survivor reactions are sort of shifting um, over the, the, the period after a crime has been committed. Okay, a couple more um, uh, quick ones. I'm just wondering, if, uh, you talked a bit about um, domestic violence, violence towards women. Um, I was wondering, are there, are there other groups of people or sorts of people who would be particularly susceptible to violence in this period? I'm thinking if it is like um, if, if violence is managed in a communal way, then presumably people who are not part of that community, i.e. itinerant travellers or, or um, uh, vagrants, that sort of people, they would be more susceptible to violence. And would there be any racial or ethnic groups who would be more susceptible to violence as well? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, it depends what kind of violence you're talking about, but... <clears throat> 
the obvious pairing with thinking about domestic abuse would be to think about um, abuse slash disciplining of children. Um, there's a really good new book on um, uh, uh, corporal punishment of children in an educational context uh, by Ben Parsons, which finds something very similar to the domestic abuse thing. That there's this very fine line between acceptable discipline and excessive brutality. Um, in terms of, of racial ethnic groups, um, there's certainly an enormous amount of anti-Semitic violence. By the time you move, you, you've, you've moved into the 14th century, um, Jewish communities have been expelled, obviously, um, from England. And in the later 14th century, they've been expelled from France too. But there's, you know, that kind of violence is certainly um, extremely prevalent. And I think conceptually probably works very differently, actually. Um, in terms of thinking about strangers... Yes, I don't think it would have been fun to arrive as a stranger in a in a medieval community. But perhaps what's most striking there is the ways in which strangers or vagrants or anyone deemed marginal um, in one way or another might not just have been the victim of a crime, but was more likely to be assumed to be criminal. Um, actually, the evidence suggests that, <clears throat> I was citing that study by James Given, that most violence was committed by people who knew each other. But there's nevertheless this stereotype going around that <clears throat> strangers are more likely to commit crimes. So there's a real stigma um, to being part of a, a marginalised group. And building on that, would there be any difference between levels of violence or types of violence that uh, that were perpetrated in a rural versus an urban context? Yes, yes. No, I'm sure there are. I think in, in an urban context, we start to see... Um, we start to see different kinds of groups working together, different kinds of solidarities emerging in terms of the ways in which violence is perpetrated. Um, at the same time, it's very tricky because the kinds of court operating in an urban context and in a rural context look really different. Um, a wild generalisation might be to say that in a rural context, those kinds of kinship structures <clears throat> seem to shape much more violence, which is about kind of family vengeance and feuds and that sort of thing. And in urban contexts, um, economic motivations become more and more prevalent. But there's all kinds of ways one might want to problematise that as well, I think. Okay, last one, um, uh, uh, a quick one. Just, I, I often want this. You had your, the picture of the stocks there at uh, in one of your slides. Um, I'm, I'm interested in sort of the trope of the of the medieval stocks. Were they actually um, used a lot? What did people end up in stocks a lot? And were you know were they stood there being pelted with rotten tomatoes and things like that? Is is that actually a thing that happened a lot? And do we see it in the documents? Um, yeah, it seems to have been a, a, a readily used punishment and and a really really effective one because it's it's complete complete humiliation and. And shaming. I mean, I'm sure it was physically extremely uncomfortable, but the main thing is that that sense of shame and humiliation is an extremely effective way of deterring people from from doing whatever it is you don't want them to do. Um, some of the best images of um, stocks in the medieval period are in the margins of manuscripts. So not the kind of serious illuminations depicting whatever saint it may be, but the little marginal figures um, who were there no one quite knows why, but possibly as a sort of joke. And there's lots and lots of images of, of, I don't know, rabbits sitting in the stocks being pelted by another rabbit or by a fox or something like that. But, you know, clearly the, it's an image which is very meaningful to people. There's, there is uh, something very interesting about rabbits in medieval illumination, which I'm sure we could, we could uh, talk about for a long time. There's 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 something going on there with the with the rabbits, isn't there? But um, uh, perhaps we need someone else to talk about that. Anyway, look, um, I think we're I think we're we're out of time. Hannah, thank you so much for delivering that talk and doing it virtually um, there in your in your um, in your spare room there. Thank you so much. I thought that um, was fascinating and very well well done. Um, I should say so. We have um, some other talks from our medieval life and death day which we're putting together and they. they we will be combining all these and uh, they will be available on our website, historyextra.com. And what we're going to try and do uh, at some point is try and coalesce these together and, and try and have a have further opportunity for our listeners, readers, um, viewers to, to put further questions to you. But um, we're going to work that out and, uh, and uh, report back on that. But in the, uh, for now, thank you very much for that excellent talk. It was, it was truly fascinating. That was Hannah Skoda talking about medieval violence. If you'd like to watch this lecture, it's at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. For more from this series, tune in next Saturday 
when Chris Woolgar will be discussing medieval food. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.